everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries, and as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're very happy to have with us Sonia Gardner, President, Managing Partner, and Co-Founder of Avenue Capital Group, a global asset management firm specializing in distressed debt and other special situations investments. UNCDF is also particularly proud that Sonia was designated a UN Goodwill Ambassador in October 2020 with the title UNCDF Goodwill Ambassador for Gender Equality and Access to Finance. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into finance. So I was born in Morocco and my parents came here when I was four years old and spoke very little English and really came here with almost nothing. Grew up in a tiny apartment, sharing a room with my brother and sister and went to school on scholarship and went to college on scholarship and law school on scholarship and really never felt like we grew up with nothing. So I grew up very happy childhood and Goes to show you, obviously, money is not happiness, and I've had both, and so I know the difference. And after law school, I wanted to become a prosecutor, and I applied for the prosecutor job at, in the Bronx, which is one of the toughest divisions in New York City, made it to the last interview, and unfortunately did not get the job. So. What I always say to people is at the time, that was my dream job, and I was completely devastated. And I know that happens to everyone. And what people need to remember is that you never know what's right around the corner. So I then took a job with a small firm that represented different landlords that actually had a lot of buildings in Harlem. And my job was to oversee the process of making sure that all the violations got taken off the buildings and really working with the housing court to make sure that the building was brought off, brought up to code. And for anyone that that's a lawyer, housing court is probably the, the least glamorous job in in terms of any law job, but I was very happy and felt very rewarded that I was actually helping people in poverty actually have their buildings brought up to code. So anyhow, my boss put me in charge of this one building and he told me that a woman named Marianne, who lived in Georgia, owned the building. And another one of our clients was actually forced to sell the building by the court because in those days, and it's probably still the law, but if you had too many violations and they didn't get fixed, you had to actually sell the building. So we represented Marianne and I worked 
with the housing department, went to the building almost every day, met all the people. I mean, it was actually a great experience. And I was a little bit their savior to some extent because they knew that I was in charge of, of making sure everything got fixed. So I spoke to them and, and made sure that even things that were not essentially on the list got taken care of. So we got to the point where everything had been done and I became very friendly with, with the actually government official that, that was in charge of making sure we did everything correctly. And he asked me a few times, have you ever met your client? And I said, no, but I'm so excited. She's a senior woman. I can't wait to, to meet her. She's coming up from Georgia when everything is done and, and she's going to sign the papers. So the day finally came and I walked into my boss's office and I said, well, where's Marianne? I'm, you know, I can't wait to meet her. I'm so excited. And he said, I mean, I literally will never forget his words. He said, sit down, Sonia, I have something to tell you. There is no Marianne. And I said, what, what are you talking about? I mean, I actually thought he was joking at first. He said, we never really sold the building. We set up a dummy corporation and he still owns the building. The, the other client that was supposed to, to have sold it by court order. He said, so you're going to sign the papers and you are going to go in tomorrow and say that you met Marianne and Marianne came in and signed the papers. And I literally lost it and basically was screaming a few obscenities and, and said, you're absolutely crazy. I mean, I literally had not even been totally accepted to the bar yet because I had just graduated from law school. So you still had to go through your interviews and, and so on and so forth. And so th this is really the reason that I like to tell this story. And I do tell, this is more the long version of how I got into finance, is really when I'm talking to groups of young people and really trying to explain to them that there are points in your life where you're going to have to make a tough decision. And what he said to me is, Sonia, you're being a prude. Everyone does this. This is how it works. Everyone that is forced to sell buildings doesn't really do it. And you go into court, file the papers, and everything's fine. Happens all the time. And those are words that I think a lot of people will hear at some point in their career, right? You hear stories about how that happens. And then all of a sudden, one day, you know, the SEC comes in and says, well, doesn't matter that everybody does it. You know, today's the day that, that everybody is, is really going to pay the price. So I screamed a few more obscenities <laughs> and said, that's not happening. This is completely crazy and I quit. I'm going to go call the lawyer on the other side and tell him I'm not going to be there tomorrow. And, you know, he reminded me of attorney-client privilege that obviously I couldn't share what was going on. At that point, I was 26 years old. I mean, this was literally my first job out of law school. So I called him and said, things aren't working out. I'm just not going to see you tomorrow. I'm not 
here anymore. And, you know, interestingly, he almost was relieved to some extent because he said, oh, wow, okay. Oh, I wasn't, wasn't sure what you were going to do. And the next day, my boss went into court and filed the papers and he got arrested. So the government knew all along that there was no Marianne and that it was a dummy corporation and so on and so forth. And if I had not quit, that would have been me that essentially got arrested for doing something that quote unquote, everyone does. And that's the way it works. And I had to testify and, you know, it was kind of a long drawn out story. So then my brother was actually pounding the pavement, looking to start his own business in distress investing because he had been working for someone at, at the time. Very few people did it. And he was at R.D. Smith and had left there, wanted to start his own thing. And so he said, I need another lawyer. Come with me until you find a job. And at the time I said, oh, that's, you know, it's crazy. I have no interest in doing finance. I really want to pursue my law career, but I'll work with you until I find something else. So we started working together and obviously I loved what I was doing and never left. And, and it really was happenstance and it just was unique timing that at the moment that I didn't have a job, he was at that point, looking to start something different. And really at the time, because we were focused on distress investing, it was really important to be a lawyer because everything was highly negotiated and contracts were done one-on-one. There was no LSTA where everything is uniform. And, you know, at this point, obviously everything is online. I mean, back then this was 30 years ago. So when we were typing, doing contracts, we were literally putting them on a typewriter. So at, at this stage, I mean, it's, it's really fun to look back because it was hard at the time and, and people don't realize all the technology and all the access that they have at this point. But so we started very small. It was just me, my brother and a secretary and and one investment person. And we built the firm very slowly over time. And, you know, at this point now we have approximately $10 billion, which, you know, never in our wildest dreams did, did we think we we'd have that. So, so my big lesson in life and, and what I say to everyone that I mentor and I speak to a lot of different groups of, of young people, whether they're in business school, law school is really, you've got to follow your gut and throughout your career. The one thing that you have is your integrity. And there are so many people that cross the line because they think quote unquote, everyone does it. Or honestly, when you're very young, it's very intimidating when your boss tells you to do something and and actually says, well, that's the way it's done. And in your gut, I think most people know, well, that's 
wrong and, and I shouldn't be doing this. And yes, is it very hard to just walk out when you don't have another job? I mean, at the time, I had no other prospects and my parents had, you know, nothing in terms of, of to help me and in, in terms of paying the rent. But I knew that I would figure it out, irrespective of what type of job I got. There was nothing that was going to make me do something that, in my view, was clearly illegal. So it, it just goes to show you also that I think people should be open to trying different things because I was a philosophy major and went to law school and, and actually really wanted to practice law. And when I went into the world of finance, I never realized that it was something that I was going to love doing. And, and part of it was also that we were building our own business. So I had the added excitement, pride, hardships. But when you're building your own business, it's, it's actually something that's very rewarding, very hard, but very rewarding. So, so that is probably my most important lesson to, to young people is really, you know, people sometimes look at someone who they think is quote unquote successful and think that there was an easy path and, you know, when you're young, it's difficult. And, and really, I think a lot of people that are in senior positions have, have really interesting convoluted stories of how they got to where they are. And it's not a straight line. And it's not always what you thought you would be doing when you were in college or when you were young. And, and really have an open mind and, and really a good attitude about trying different areas and, and really leave yourself open to the possibility that there may actually be something else that you're going to love to do. And, and don't cross that line and don't ever let anyone take away your integrity. Wow. That's an amazing story. And there's so many great things I love about that. One is that you could have, you know, been a very distinguished lawyer and we would have not had you in this position, but also how quickly justice came to your boss like the next day. That's amazing. I think it's a great story because it's essentially peer pressure, right? It's the same as being in high school or, you know, having somebody say, do this because other people are doing it. So I think, you know, we've talked before about how important integrity is. Good for you at 26 to be able to stand up and take that kind of decision and then to be gratified so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> the right yeah. It's kind of a crazy story, but uh, it's exactly the way it happened. That's fantastic. Wow. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, on this theory of integrity, I know you've spoken before about how important it is to choose the right people when you're building your business. You know, what do you look for when you're hiring for Avenue? You've mentioned that many of your staff is with you 10, 20 years so that you're looking for good people and you want to keep them. What are the characteristics that will tell you if someone shares your values and is willing to take those same decisions that you did? So from, from our standpoint, the culture of the firm is very important and, and culture in any firm is very important. And it's really the reason why people stay with us for 10, 20 plus years. And 
you know, sometimes it's very difficult when you interview someone and they can come across very well. And, and there have been times where we've made mistakes where you, you think one thing and, and then it, it turns out not to be the case in terms of your viewpoint. But a lot of the people we've hired are really through references of people that we know very well. And, and because we're small, we were able to do that. I think that's obviously very difficult if you're a large company, but it helps if someone that you trust can vouch for that person. And, and the other thing is during an interview, when you talk about the culture and you say that compliance is very important and we don't tolerate anyone crossing the line in any way, and that people are immediately terminated if that happens. And we don't care if you're the largest moneymaker in the company or, you know, you're working in the mailroom. Everyone gets treated the same. And unfortunately, there are too many firms that if someone is a real producer and, and does make a lot of money for the firm, sometimes they bend the rules or, or they just get special privileges. And that's something that's not done. And I think that really having a flat structure and, and everyone feeling that they're at the same level, although it's very clear that we have senior people and department heads and everyone is, is treated with respect and it's collaborative. I think collaboration is, is very important. And, and really just listening in an interview. I think that sometimes people ask a lot of questions. And my feeling is that the interviewer should not be speaking a lot, that, that really you should listen. And, and I think you can pick up on things just based on, on what that person is saying and what's important to them. What are they looking for? Um, how quickly do they think they need to move up in the ranks, right? I mean, are they patient? Do they have a good work ethic there? But on it, honestly, I, I think a lot of it comes down to really checking references as well. It's so important. And I think if you check enough references and you hear enough good things in terms of what your reaction was to what you thought that person projected, then you know, for us, that has worked really well. But but a lot of it has been also spending a lot of time when we have senior portfolio managers. I mean, we've spent years talking to people before they join us. And it's a big decision because hiring the wrong person in a very senior position can can sometimes blow up the firm. So it's everyone's reputation is is extremely important. So Avenue recently launched an impact investment fund in addition to your, your traditional strategy. I wonder if you can give us your thoughts on where impact investment is in, as an industry and where do you see it going? Yeah, the, the, the good news is that there is a lot more capital being allocated to impact investing. I mean, people have been talking about it for years and in the beginning it had a little bit of a reputation for doing good, but not achieving good returns. So people started shying away from it, but now 
the pensions and, and very large investors and even small investors for that matter are really looking for impact investing. I think that, that people care and you can make a great investment and achieve returns and also do good for our society. And for us, it was important. I mean, we had always tried to do a lot of that in just our, our regular funds because we, we have funds in the US, Asia, and Europe. And we just felt it was the right time. And we had some large investors that were willing to back us and gave us seed capital. And we just started in, in the last year and have made a few investments, but it's also, it's, you have to really be dedicated and the due diligence is, is a little bit different than what you do under normal circumstances. But we are absolutely 100% committed to making investments that have a positive impact on society and also achieve a return for our investors. And, and I think that the more people that do that, the more investors will feel comfortable putting more and more capital into that space. So our entire global audience, and of course, all of us here are dealing with the impacts of COVID from this year. How did the pandemic affect Avenue's business and its operations? And how did you address it as a leader? So we closed our office in early March. Um, our headquarters is in New York, and, and it was similar timing for, for Europe a little earlier in, in our Asia offices. And we immediately set up a COVID response team when the news started coming out in, in February, and we were meeting biweekly really to decide whether or not we wanted to close the offices and really to make sure that when a closing did happen, if it were to happen, that we were prepared. We had tested having half the office stay home and while the other half worked, and then we did the same thing so that everyone knew that, that their systems worked at home. And we also had a lot of testing for emergencies. I mean, after 9-11, that's one of the requirements from the SEC that you have to test your, your emergency plan. And, and so when we actually did close the office, we did it when the New York City Public Schools closed. And it was very seamless and we were prepared. Everyone was able to work from home immediately. And, you know, there were some minor issues. Maybe someone didn't have enough Wi-Fi or, or they needed a bigger screen, things like that. But we, I mean, I'm very proud of our IT department and, and everyone just in terms of how we immediately shifted to that. And, and so we kept having weekly meetings to discuss protocol, when and if we would return to the office. I mean, obviously in the beginning, New York was very bad, so we weren't discussing that, but you know, more towards the summer, we started discussing that. And really also making sure that department heads checked in with their people all the time to make sure that everyone was okay, because there's a lot of isolation and it really, is more difficult for some people than others, just in terms of, of the isolation. And people who have small children 
found it very hard in terms of, of really, you know, to some extent homeschooling, right? Because you have to, if you have a, a very small child, you have to be on top of them. And, and so we made it flexible in terms of if people did have that situation, it was okay, right? There's, nobody's punching a time clock and people got their work done and, and their schedule was flexible. And, and obviously they spend time with their kids uh, online and, and then, you know, maybe change some meetings or, or what have you. But it's been very interesting because, you know, then along comes Zoom, which, which is, you know, another, another interesting uh, outcome of, of it was, it existed beforehand, but I, I think many of us never used it. And I think that what will happen is even after things go back to normal, that people will still have Zoom meetings and, you know, maybe you don't need to get on a plane every time. And we had a, an unbelievable turnout for our investor conference in October. It was actually the highest we've ever had. And the reason for that is because it was on Zoom. So a lot of times people just can't plan their in their schedule to actually come to New York for the conference. So we've decided that in the future we're going to do a combination, you know, live conference and and Zoom. But I think the most important thing about COVID was really having compassion for everyone that you work with and and really understanding what were their struggles. And, and then we asked everyone what were their concerns in terms of reopening the office, which we did after Labor Day. And it was 100% voluntary. You know, everyone had different concerns. Some were health concerns, but mostly it was getting on public transportation and also childcare because a lot of people still had school closures and had childcare issues, weren't, didn't, didn't want their babysitters to come to their home for various reasons. And, and so, you know, to this day, we maybe have six or eight people in the office on any given day. And we have 140 people just in the New York office, but it's voluntary. There, there is a small handful of people that want to get out of their apartment for whatever reason, maybe they have a tiny apartment with a bunch of kids and, and they're going crazy. So, so that's really been how we've handled it and, and really how we'll continue to handle it in, in terms of, you know, thankfully the vaccine is around the corner and, and so we will follow the guidance and, and open back up just in, in terms of when we feel it's safe. So you've been very active in philanthropy throughout your career. What makes a grant or donation effective in your view? What are some practices for funders to consider when they're choosing between different causes that they could support? Well, I, th I think there's a few things. I mean, the first is it really should be a cause that you're passionate about. I mean, there are so many charities and, and so many people that are in need, so many organizations that that need funds. And, and so it's a combination of where do you think 
you can make an impact, not only financially, but also with your time and resources. And I think that whatever someone can give, that's absolutely the most important thing. Give whatever you can afford and do something. And, and as you can afford more in your life, then you just increase your donations. But it's important to be involved and really make sure that it's not just something where you're writing a check. And, and also find out about the organization, how much of the donations are really going to fund the operations of, of the organization, how much is actually going to the cause that you've been told that you're supporting. And yes, every not-for-profit needs a staff and, and needs you know, operation costs, but there are certain standards and, and you can easily do the research on the internet and, and really meet the people. I mean, if you're making a larger donation, then you should get to know the people that you're supporting and really understand where it's going. But what I've what I've always said is for me and, and hopefully for a lot of people, I think that you have to have the right definition of success. It's not just about financial success. And, and if you're lucky enough to reach a point in your life where you do have financial success, then an essential part of, of being really successful is really giving back and, and giving to philanthropy. And, and for me, I've lived the American dream. I mean, we came here with nothing and, and now I'm in a place where never thought that, that I would be where I am and, and feel lucky every day. And, and there's a lot of need out there and, and I try to do as much as I can. So Sonia, we've talked before about the challenges that women face in finance overall. Why do you think there are these challenges and what can we do to address them? Yeah, that's a, obviously an important topic. I mean, there, there have been many books written about this. And I think that recently, over, over the last few years, I and mean, people are taking it much more seriously. And I feel that a lot of corporations and, and just in general, people are essentially trying to, quote unquote, fix that problem. The issue really centers around a few things. I mean, one is if we look at how many women actually go to business school, the graduate class, and then how many women enter a lot of the programs at a lot of the investment banks. And it's really 50-50 at the entry level and actually in schools. And then the problem is when women get to mid-level positions, we see that there's a large drop-off in the numbers. And there's various reasons for that. I mean, I think that one of the important issues to address is that when women have children and, and I read an interesting article once, which stuck with me where someone said, the fact that we call it maternity leave and actually include the word leave is psychologically, it's essentially saying women are leaving the workforce, right? So that's, you know, just in terms of unconscious bias, when we think about what happens 
when a woman has a child, essentially has a break to take care of her child, you know, come back after whatever she feels is the right time for her and is viewed as having left the workforce. And the unconscious bias and the reality of of what happens after that is there used to be something called the mommy track. I think now it's it's probably not politically correct to say that, but I think that that concept exists even though it's not you know, it's, it's unspoken that women are treated differently. They're treated less seriously, that somehow there's a bias that they're not as committed now that that they have other responsibilities where, by the way, you know, men have those same responsibilities when they have children and they're given less interesting work. They're not promoted They're The compensation is not on track and, and equal to their male counterparts. And so for a variety of reasons, some of it being that either they just stop getting promoted because they're on this mommy track that just has stalled their career because of unconscious bias, irrespective of the work that they're doing, which is obviously extremely unfair. And, and so sometimes because they're demoralized or what have you, they will leave. Or essentially, in a way, they're being asked to leave by not getting work that is interesting or on par with work that they were getting before that. And I think that unconscious bias, it's the essence of that is that we have preconceived notions of what women are capable of, what men are capable of. And obviously it doesn't center to just men and women, but it's ethnicities and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm, I think right now, we're, you know, let's just focus on, on women. And really, they need to be viewed as an employee or as someone who is valuable in that particular department. It really, I mean, although it's very hard to say that gender should not be even a consideration, that just doesn't happen. And I think that that the transparency around how promotions are made, transparency around how work is distributed and how essentially someone who comes back from a maternity break, what is different in terms of, of how they are treated? And I think if companies are really aware of that, and make a conscious effort that that can somewhat override the unconscious bias. And really, if you have a talented employee, whether it's a man or a woman, every company and every employer should be doing everything they can to keep that employee. And because someone takes a break for whatever period of time that they took a break, companies need to be flexible to retain someone that has performed well in the past and that will perform well in the future. Nothing changes about the work product. If we can all learn to really address the person as opposed to whether addressing a woman or a man or even just in terms of equality with respect to ethnicity and and just having diversity across the entire workforce, 
that we can make a conscious effort to override the unconscious bias and really look at the quality of a person's work, look at their dedication, how hard they work, and really allow everyone to show that they can excel. And I think that a lot is being done about that. And I think that it's commendable. And the unfortunate thing is that the results are really not there. And the improvement in terms of the numbers and just women excelling and really getting promoted and being, I mean, women as CEOs, I mean, Jane Frazier just recently, it was announced that she's going to be the first CEO of a major bank, which is really exciting. And that is a huge step, but there needs to be more than just one, right? And it's obviously taken a long time. So as I said, it it has been improving. I think that a lot more needs to be done. I think, you know, we've spoken in the past about how mentoring is very important and young women. And even, I mean, if you think about women in middle management, you're still a young woman at that point. And right. I mean, you might not feel like it because you feel like, you know, everything when you're in your thirties or what have you, but they need to see role models of senior women, but also role models of men that are willing to mentor young women and even women when they're not, you know, quote unquote young and really help them along the process of climbing the corporate ladder because there are different points in your career when you're up for a promotion and maybe you need advice or you need a pep talk. And having a mentor and maybe even several mentors is very important. And I think we've discussed before also 100 Women in Finance, which has, I mean, at this point, it has about 20,000 members and they have an extremely important and robust next-gen program where there really is a big effort encouraging women to enter finance and really doing something about mentoring and also have peer groups. There's so much that people can do just in terms of different support systems. So it's not just within your own company. I mean, having a mentor doesn't necessarily mean that it's your boss, right? I mean, that to some extent, it would be great if your boss was your mentor, but it's really good to get outside opinions and really hear the story of what other women have faced because it hasn't been easy for anybody. And I think that sometimes there's that myth. And when someone hears the story of someone else's struggle, they feel, oh, okay, so I'm not alone in that. And there is a way to get past this, or there is a way to address this. Thank you. And I think you will be one of those mentors for all of our constituents at UNCDF. I think one of the things we're really excited about for having you join us as our first Goodwill Ambassador is to have a very prominent, successful woman in finance speak for our agency. And we know that we're really looking forward to having that impact across least developed countries where these role models are even fewer. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, We're working together with you and Women in Finance to bring that mentorship, that network, that experience, those stories, and the power of having you and your female colleagues be those role models for this generation of women 
in least developed countries who maybe don't have those in their own country. So we're really looking forward to building that and extending the power of that network that you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. I'm very excited to get started and very excited to be doing this. It's I get as much out of it as hopefully the women that I'm mentoring get out of it. And I think that's very important. It's the same thing with giving back, right? I mean, you hear it all the time that the person that is giving back gets more out of it than what they're necessarily giving or who they're helping. And it's also very rewarding to really help young women in their careers and actually feel that it's making a difference. And I think a lot more people need to be doing this. It really does not take that much effort. I mean, we're talking about really having phone calls periodically and taking them to lunch and really helping them get internships. I mean, there's a lot of different things that people can do. And even the small gesture of having lunch with someone when you're young and you're at a point where you're starting your career and you don't really understand the hurdles that you're going to face, that is an extremely important conversation coming from someone who they feel is a lot more senior than them. And I think that having male mentors is just as meaningful because it shows them that the unconscious bias or all the stories that they've heard, or, or I mean, honestly, just looking at the numbers of how few women are at the top, that that's being addressed. And I think that companies are definitely dedicated to making a change. The question is how many actual different programs and different, you know, what are they going to implement to make that change? I mean, that's really what it's about. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. We count ourselves very lucky that you feel passionate about this issue and that you've chosen to work with us. Thank you again for sharing your time with us. That's been our podcast, UNCDF's Capital Musings. Again, you can find us on Apple and Spotify or our website, www.uncdf.org. Take care and stay safe. Thanks, Esther. Stay safe. Thanks again for joining us, everyone, for UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.